Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. In this episode, Laval and I are speaking with Alex Hutchinson, who has a PhD in physics from the University of Cambridge. He's a National Magazine award-winning journalist who's worked, whose work has appeared in Outside Magazine, Globe and Mail, The New York Times, The New Yorker, and many other publications. And Alex wrote the book Endure in 2018. That book was published and uh, had a large impact both on Laval and I. And we are so honored to be able to bring you this conversation. So Alex, thank you so much for making the time. We have broken this one into two episodes, so it's a little more consumable for you. And we really hope that you enjoy this conversation. If you have any curiosity whatsoever about how our limits are defined, both mentally and physically, this is absolutely a conversation for you, uh, as is really any of the content that Alex has created. We hope that you enjoy. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the State Bicycle Company, who you can visit at statebicycle.com. State's been supporting the pod for a long time. We love State. They're awesome. The best way to follow along with what State is doing and what they've got going on is to give them a quick follow on social media. So it's State Bicycle Co. And they've got all kinds of new stuff coming out. They're constantly doing like limited editions and collaborations and stuff that is uh, maybe more seasonal. So you definitely want to give them a follow and know what they're up to. And they've recently released a road frame that looks absolutely amazing. Uh, that is carbon fiber. So that's new for state. So check them out. You can also use code audio 100, which will give you a hundred bucks off a bicycle and they have bikes starting at 399. So that is a significant discount. So it's statebicycle.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Dewar Apparel. That's D-U-E-R. D-U-E-R dot C-A is where you can visit Dewar. Uh, They are a Canadian brand, very keenly interested in sustainability and they have some of the most awesome looking and comfortable clothing that I have ever seen. It's like a performance apparel um, with a little bit of a uh, dressy spin on it. It's awesome. They have stores in Calgary and Vancouver and you can visit them at doer.ca. Very, very pleased to be working with them and the team there. And lastly, the podcast is brought to you by 4i Technologies. That's the number four and then the letter I four times dot com. So 4i.com is where you can visit them. And 4i, if you don't know them, are a major brand in cycling and uh, they are involved in the world tour. They create power meters, heart rate monitors, all kinds of very, very cool tech. They're located close by to our hometown of Calgary, Alberta in Cochrane. And uh, so pleased to be working with 4i. We've mentioned this before. Uh, Very, very stoked. We're going to bring you more information about 4i. We're going to have some cool product giveaways, power meters. So stay tuned. Very pleased to be working with these organizations and uh, and having them support the podcast. Lastly, thank you everybody for listening. If you're able to give us a positive rating or review on whatever podcast platform you're finding the show, we greatly appreciate that. Help, that helps us find new listeners and it's really the best way for a podcast to grow. Positive ratings and reviews and uh, just word of mouth. So thank you again for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Alex, uh, first of all, this is a real thrill and an honor that you joined our um, our Adventure Audio podcast here. I've been following you for years, and it's um, all yeah, and I thought what I'd do is I'd start with a story, and the story is what led me to you. <clears throat> so uh, we're not just going to talk about your book Endure. That's uh, what you're most uh, known for at the moment. But maybe what I'll do is I'll start off by introducing you now. You're a bit of a slacker, so um, I'm going to uh, read what I've got here for your uh, 
your resume. Master's in journalism from Columbia, a PhD in physics from Cambridge, postdoctoral research with the uh, NSA in the US, uh, senior editor at Running Magazine. I don't know if that's past tense or still uh, active. You have written for Runner's World, and I think you still do. You write a regular column for Outside Magazine. You're a New York Times bestselling author. You were a contributor at Popular Mechanics Magazine, health and fitness columnist, a weekly health and fitness columnist for the Globe and Mail. You have got your uh, weekly jockology uh, segment. You're a Canadian national team runner between 97 and 2008. It's a long run in middle and long distance, including uh, being a two-time finalist on the Canadian Olympic trials. And you've competed nationally in track, cross country and mountain running. What have I missed? That's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, I don't have any Strava records on the, on the local Humber River route. So, uh, um, cause I don't have a, a GPS watch, but yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. That, that's, that's mostly all, uh, up to date and accurate. I, I don't write for uh, runner's world anymore. I, I switched over from, from them to, uh, outside, to, uh, uh, outside magazine. And, uh, um, but yeah, that's, uh, I'm a, that's, that's my, that's my gig. That's it. Eh? That's all you've got. That's quite a resume. <laughs> that's all i got <laughs> it took him like three minutes to read all that stuff yeah so alex uh, i started yeah, off by incredible. How, how i came to you is uh in 2010 i had uh summited uh, mount everest from the tibet side without oxygen and i was um descending the northeast ridge of everest and um prior to leaving um Canada to climb Everest. I had spoken on the telephone to an American climber who's familiar with climbing Everest without O's, as we say in the climbing world, without oxygen. And he said, Laval, whatever you do, don't nap. You're going to want to nap. And if you lay down, you're never going to wake up. So I was descending the ridge and uh, had been climbing with a British climber, Mark Del Stanch. Um, he was climbing with oxygen. He uh, distanced me on the descent. And pretty soon I was by myself and I was at the stage of exhaustion where I had to nap. And I remember the words of the American who told me, Lavelle, whatever you do, do, do not nap. And I was fully aware. I was cog totally cognitive of uh, what was going to happen if I napped. And I knew that I was never going to wake up. I knew that I was never going to see Janet and our kids again. And I had no feeling of remorse, no feeling of failure. I just had complete, and what I describe now as terminal exhaustion. And off in the distance down the slope, I saw what in my hypoxic mind was a, a ripped up tent high on the Northeast Ridge of Everest, but there are no tents that high on Everest. But in my you know, hypoxic riddled brain, it looked like a tent. And I thought I was gonna make it to that destroyed tent crawl behind the tattered nylon and at least get out of the wind, lay down and take a nap. And I was relieved that I was never going to wake up again because at least I'd have a long nap. <clears throat> so I was at, like I mentioned earlier, what I would consider terminal exhaustion. But as I descended through the snow to this tent, I realized it wasn't a tent, but it was a dead climber. And as I got closer to the dead climber in his high altitude down suit, I realized he had a Canadian flag on his shoulder. And he was the last Canadian that attempted to climb Everest without oxygen. And he was lying there napping in the snow. And he'd been napping there since 2009, in May 2009. And so at this point of terminal exhaustion, seeing him laying there, I paused 
and I kept on going and I made it successfully down to high camp. But I was at my limit. I was at a terminal point of exhaustion where I was ready to die. And then I realized in years, it's been 13 years now, May 24th was the anniversary of that day. But looking back on that, I realized that I just about made a huge mistake that I was going to stop because my mind was telling me to stop. And eventually my mind kept me going. My body still had the reserves in it. So that's how I discovered Endure. <laughs> oh my God. That is that's an quite an intro. Story. Though. <laughs> it's like, well, let me tell you about the time I ran the local 5k fun run and discovered my limits. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, what you describe is, is, uh, it's extreme and rare and at the absolute outer limits, but at the same time, it's a universal experience that, that all jokes aside, that people, people make this discovery in different ways, in different contexts at the local 5k at, you know, in different, that, that anyone who tries to push themselves in some way, or maybe not everyone, but most people have these moments of, of epiphany where they realize that what they thought was absolute was actually negotiable. But yeah, not 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 in not with such a great view as you probably had, and not not with uh, life and death death uh, at stake. And yeah, what most was of interesting. us were were at a point of of pride or finishing or something like that. Like Laval was when he says that he was really thought that he had reached his his limit. We're not talking about stepping off of the race course here. This is a completely different thing that we're talking. Yeah, about. it's 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 different staircases, but you know, different steps, but all on the same staircase. Where the you know, right. except he he was at the top of the staircase where you actually do fall off into the abyss if you if you don't keep climbing. Yeah. So uh, your book uh, when it came out, I think it was in 2018. I, I I got your book and I and I listened to it actually <laughs> on another hard trip. I was riding my bike from Yellowknife to Norman Wells on the ice road in the wintertime. Um, and uh, I listened to your book and it just, it's like a light bulb went off. It answered my questions as to why my uh, internal governor uh, on that high altitude ridge in the Himalayas didn't uh, stop me or kept me going. I guess it depends how you look at it. So it, in your book, you talk about some tremendous feats of endurance. What for our listeners would you consider your favorite most stunning, breathtaking, no pun intended, feat of endurance that you studied or have witnessed. Yeah, so I mean that's a, a super tough question. Which of your kids do you love best? But yeah. um, there's a body of of endurance feats that I was already very familiar with when I started writing the book, and I come from the the running world, so I you know I have a soft spot for the Elliot Kipchogis of the world. But for me, in writing the book, the one that, the one that surprised me most, the one that blew me away, was starting to look into oxygen as a as a limiter, which is kind of relevant to you know your story here, uh, and that sort of led me into looking at what free divers do, and how long they can hold their breath, um, and I think, you know, if if you if 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 I can reinterpret the question as you know, what was the story that, uh, or what was the the feat that I would have been most likely to say no, you're full of crap. That's not true. Before I'd started researching the book, it's definitely these guys who hold their breath for 10, you know, close to 11 minutes. Well, I mean, not that there's a whole bunch of them, but, um, and, and, you know, it's, it becomes a, 
that's really just a pure test of limits. There's no skill per se where, you know, and you can say the same thing about running. It's like, there, there are feats of endurance where it's like, how, you know, how long can you ride a unicycle while juggling three watermelons or whatever, but where there's, you know, the moment of failure, you can, there may be a bunch of different things going on with running. You reduce it to a pretty similar, a pretty simple activity. It's just like, how long can you maintain this pace? And it's a very elemental human activity with breathing. You're no longer even moving. It's just a question of you're suffering and how long can you go before I, you know, depending on how you look at it before your body runs out of oxygen and you stop or die or reframing it, your mind decides that you've come close enough to running out of oxygen. And so, uh, those guys, the, the, the holding the, the physiology of holding your breath for 10 minutes is absolutely fascinating. And then the psychology of not just holding your breath, but free diving. So you're going down a hundred meters below the surface of the ocean. Then it's like you're pushing your limits and you're doing it in a way that you, you, you won't know you're only halfway when you choose to turn around. And so you've still got to get all the way back. So the, the level of understanding your limits there to me, like that's, uh, you know, People on the couch say, I can't believe anyone runs a marathon. Why would anyone do that? Well, I say sincerely, I can't believe anyone drives 100 meters down below the ocean. I can't under, I can't even comprehend how you could accept that level of risk. It's it, like it's 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 physiologically baffling and psychologically thought provoking. Yeah, because when you do want to take that gasp of air at 100 meters below the ground, you're uh, you're done. Can you hear me? Did you lose me? Yeah, no, I can't. Sorry for. Oh, uh, yeah, because when you're, hundred but, uh, below the surface, when you're 100 meters below the surface, if you want to take a breath, that's it. That'll be your last breath. So you're backing yourself into a yeah, corner. Yeah, you can't, you can't, you, you, you can't uh, have second thoughts on that process. And then, you know, if you look at it, if you do get it back, and, and there's all these other factors like changes in pressure as you come up. So there's a lot of things going on. And if you do black out 10 meters from the surface, as people often do, you know, the, you black out and then your, your, your body's autonomic nervous system, it's next thing to do is to try and take a big gasp to see if it can get some oxygen and that, then, then you'll drown and die if you don't get, if you're not, you know, at the surface in, you know, seconds. So <laughs> mothers don't let your children grow up to be free drivers, but it's, it's an amazing, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing pushing of the limits. Yeah. It's, it's such a high consequence situation. Go ahead, Pete. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, the con, the, what, it's such a high consequence circumstance to put yourself into, right? Like that's, that's, that's what makes it so intense. The stakes are extremely high in those circumstances. So that's a, that's a terrific answer. How did you, how did you get so fascinated by this subject and for so long? Is it running that really brought you to this? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it is. I mean, yeah. Oh, I mean, the, the sort of, uh, how should I say the, the, the self-centered way of, of thinking about it is I, I always wanted to know why I wasn't faster. <laughs> I always wanted to know like, well, you know, why not me? Why couldn't I have been that little bit faster that, that would get me to the Olympics? Because, you know, beyond a certain level of training, nobody's afraid of pain, right? Like if, if you had told me, um, in your next race, all you have to do is take a safety pin and, you know, jab it in your leg two thirds of the way through the race. And you'll, you know, I would have jabbed it in my leg. I wasn't, um, 
I wasn't afraid of suffering. I was willing to do what it took. And yet only very, very rarely would I finish a race feeling like there was nothing left. You know, it's that the, the, in, in the book, I, I talk about this, but there, there's this whole line of research that's centered around the idea of the finishing kick. If, you, if you're supposed to be the most tired at the end of the race, how come people accelerate? This doesn't fit with the conventional physiology. And that when I started to read those those academic papers, those 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 physiology papers trying to understand like how do people accelerate at the end of the race, it just totally resonated with me because it seemed to me that uh, much like Laval's story, but you know, writ small, my the, the way I finished races depended not on how much fuel was left in my in in my legs, but often on the the sort of psychological state or the random events, the someone cheering at the right time or seeing the finish line or, or things like that. And so when I when I sort of asked myself why why am why am I not faster, it it sort of slowly dawned on me that the answer wasn't because my glycogen stores weren't big enough or the, or because I hadn't def, done enough plyometrics or whatever. Um, that that there was a lot of psychology in there that I that when in my competitive days I didn't really pay a lot of attention to. And so when in my sort of post-series competitive days, when I started writing, uh, started as a journalist and writing about the science of exercise, it was that side of things that that attracted me. And, and then what I, I had good timing, I, I sort of stumbled into this at a time when researchers were really arguing about it in the sort of late 2000s. Um, it was a hot topic. I mean, it still is to some degree, but maybe not quite as much. But there, was, there were huge debates going on between this sort of body-centered limits approach, uh, way of thinking things and the psychology. So as a journalist, I, I stumbled into really what is the, the the ideal situation, which is an area of science where there's new discoveries or new insights coming out every month or whatever, and there's scientists disagreeing. And so that that was just fun, just from a purely intellectual point of view, to, to be covering this area of science that was evolving. Right. And that's that exact topic is what is, um, I believe it was Malcolm Gladwell's podcast that introduced me to that specific topic within the book of the placement of a finish line and how that affects what we're able to do, or even if there's competitors around us, right? Yeah. And you know, you can, you can observe this by going to any local fun run and standing or any, any, any race of any distance at any, in any sport and stand near the finish line and you see people coming around the corner they're looking like death and they see the finish line and all of a sudden everyone's sprinting to the finish line. But then you can do, you can take it into the lab and you can do these more fine grained studies where you're like, okay, you're racing against a virtual version of yourself, uh, from your, you know, your best performance. What happens if we speed it up by 1% or half a percent? What happens if we speed it up by one and a half or 2%? And, you know, initially you think you're supposed to be able to stay with that virtual version of yourself. So you do. And you, but the more you speed it up, eventually you reach a point where instead of getting 2% faster, you get 5% slower because you're just discouraged because you can't keep. So there's this, it's a very, um, very complex psychology. All these things that you mentioned, you know, the, the competitor, the environment, the, the structure of the race, all these things affect your, your quote unquote physical limits in, in ways that are, that are subtle and, and not necessarily easy to predict in advance. Didn't you sort of accidentally fall upon this though with the <clears throat> timing malfunction that you talked about in uh, I've heard you talking about it uh, several times and it was uh, it was one of these eureka moments I think that uh, that because I don't think you're a real proponent of the woo woo psychology um, aspect of, of athletic performance before you're more of the physiological guy right 
Yeah, I'm, and I, you know, honestly, I still struggle with this in that my 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 personality, my sort of epistemology, my approach to life is like, if you if you can't show me a peer reviewed study, I'm not interested. So I'm I'm very much, um, I was very much in the sort of just pure physiology mindset. But as you say, I, I had this race. I had a, a, a race. I was in I was in third year university, so 1996, where the 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 timer standing at the finish line, kept calling out the times each lap, had was basically giving us the wrong splits. He he had missed the start, and so he he kind of tricked me into thinking that I was having a better race than I was, and it became a self fulfilling prophecy. I, I'd been trying to break four minutes for 1500 for like three years, and I'd been running 401, 402, and I ran 352 in this race. It was like a a huge, huge, huge breakthrough that altered the trajectory of my like in a, in a very dramatic way, altered the trajectory of my running career. Uh, because then after I'd had that breakthrough, I then had another breakthrough and another one. Like it just completely removed a set of limits from my mind. And it, was it a turning point? Yeah, it was a turning point. One that I, it was a turning point in my running career, but also in my interest in this sort of idea of the nature of limits, I would say it was it was one that I recognized more in retrospect that, that I became, you know, I, after that moment, I was always suspicious of limits when, you know, sp- finishing races, having tried as hard as I could, but suspicious of whether there was more in there that I just hadn't been able to unlock for whatever reason. And then as I started to get into it as a journalist and get into the, the science and trying to understand what was going on and, and, and sort of recognizing that, wow, this has become kind of an obsession. It's been 10 years. I'm still writing about the same stuff. What, where does this come from? And, and that's when I sort of, you know, excavating the past. It's like, you know, I think it goes back to that race in 1996. I think that was really the foundational moment. But I don't know. Uh, I don't know. At the time, I probably recognized it more as like, hey, I'm fast now. All right. As opposed to this is a real mystery that I need to spend the next 20 years uh, trying to untangle. So with the benefit of hindsight, you were able to see exactly what happened versus thinking that you're just physiologically stronger at that moment. Yeah, I mean, I would say I I, I knew there was something more than, you know, than physiology. Go, I, I, well, I, guess, I guess the way I would have framed it at the time is that I was racing badly and then something clicked and I started racing well. And I don't think that's a really fair way of characterizing it in that it's, it's, it's something more than just like, sometimes you have bad races and sometimes you have good races. It's, it's, it's a more fundamental insight that, you know, it wasn't that I wasn't racing up to my potential. And then I did race up to my potential because even once, even after I had that breakthrough, that doesn't mean I was suddenly racing at hundred percent of my physiological capacity. And, and, and so the, the, yeah, I guess what I, the realization I came to 10 years later or whatever, is that quote unquote physiological capacity is basically a hypothetical construct for, for all practical purposes that none of us is ever, with the exception of maybe coming down the, the Tibet side of Everest with no oxygen, but in only rare, rare, rare circumstances is the concept of like a hundred percent of my physiological limits, um, relevant and, and, and Laval, you know, in your experience, as you, as you found out, even in those, that situation, which was as extreme as it gets, you had this sort of false finish line that helped you discover, oh, actually I can keep going. And so, so even in that situation, so that I, I guess it, it was a shift from, I was underperforming and then I started performing up to my potential to, 
potential is just something much harder to measure than I realized. And that we're all, we're always on a sliding scale of how close can we get to those limits as opposed to just finally getting to those limits and saying, you know, no, no, no athlete ever finishes a race and, or well, I'll stay away from absolutes. Absolutes. Very, very rarely will you find an athlete who finishes a race and says, that's as fast as I could go. That was it. That was everything. Everyone's like, ah, I think I could do a little bit more. I could have, if I'd done something a little bit differently partway, or if I did if the training, if I hadn't missed, uh, you know, a bit of training three weeks ago or whatever the case may be, we're, we, we always have that sense intuitively that, yeah, there's a little more in the tank. But we don't have that when we're 90% done. That's when we're telling ourselves that we're cooked, right? No. It, it's like a different, co- it's like a, it's like an altered dimension. And this is what, you know, it, it still amazes me that, um, you know, I know that two thirds of the way through a race, um, I will be convinced that I've gone out too hard and that I am now dying and that there's nothing I can do and that, oh, well, that was stupid. I need to slow down. And then I'll get to the last portion of the race and I'll start speeding up again. Why did I slow down? I, I still, like, I, you know, it's, it's been 30 years of racing and I, and I still, but, but the truth, the truth as you experience it in the middle of a race is different than the truth you experience looking back on it. And, and, uh, intellectual knowledge of what your body's capable of only takes you so far, I think. But are we battling our evolutionary programming there? Because we're, unless we're in some sort of fight or flight mode, we're, we're sort of programmed to rest and reserve energies, right? I think so. I think that that's to me the most, um, mm-hmm. the most logical and compelling explanation for for why we're wired this way. Now, I mean, there's there's different ways of there, there are debates about this. So one way of thinking about it is just that it's not so much evolution isn't worried about whether you're sprinting until you keel over. Uh, evolution just wants you to save energy more generally. So evolution makes it effortful to get up and walk around. It makes it, or to, you know, to, to, to move around for a prolonged period of time. And, and it's just because that way you're not, you know, when you're not out hunting the, the, the wildebeest, you sit around the campfire and you conserve your energy. You don't just dance for no reason all night long or whatever. And so maybe as a byproduct of that sort of fundamental energy conservation, it also is really, really hard to keep pushing when we're really burning energy fast. Maybe that's it. Or maybe there's a more direct, like, no evolution has weeded out the, the, the people who were willing to just sprint, keep sprinting after the wildebeest until they literally keeled over unconscious because those people didn't make it back to the campfire. You, you, can, you can sort of concoct any number of different stories as to what the function was, but the, but the net result, as you say, is we're, we're fighting against some wiring that's been in our systems for how many, who knows how many you know, millions of, of years or whatever that, that instills in us a very, very strong desire to slow down or stop and, and also seems to like just alter the way we, we, or I don't know if it's altered, but just it creates this perception in us that, that there's no more, that we can't keep going and we have to stop. I think it's best described in, in, in some writing, possibly it was you, so, so forgive me if it was, a, a tele-anticipation where you're anticipating. So if you're doing a 200K bike ride at 180K, it starts to really hurt. If you're doing an 80 or 100K bike ride at about 180K, it's really starting to hurt. And you're thinking, man, this is going to be a tough day because you've, you, you're anticipating the finish line. And I think that possibly explains why we have these... Um, rapid kicks to the finish didn't we just have that in the london marathon with uh was it kip Tum? 
that won the London Marathon? Didn't he do an unbelievable final 2K? Oh, it's or- crazy, yeah. Can, can you tell us about that he marathon? Was, he was sprinting, yeah. Legendary marathon. Well, the London Marathon this year was interesting because of the the two different, the, the men's and women's races played out so differently that the women's race, there was a pack of four runners, I think, left uh, for the in, for the final kilometers. And so you knew it was going to come down to a sprint. And and the sort of the speculation is, well, who, who's going to be fastest? Is it going to be the, the person who could sprint the fastest if they were fresh? Or is it going to be the person who has the most left, uh, you know, who has the best endurance? They will turn, they will seem like the best runner. And in this case, in fact, to most people's surprise, my surprise, uh, Sifan Hassan, who's a, uh, a, a an Olympic medalist at 1500 meters, so very, like a track runner, she still had enough to just launch an amazing sprint uh, after 42 kilometers of running in her first marathon and, and win the race. And in the men's race, uh, Kelvin Kiptum was, uh, he ran the last 10 K he, he ran with the, the pack for 30 kilometers. And then for the last 10 or 12 K, he just dropped them. I think he won by over two minutes if I'm remembering correctly. And so that th- that's what actually made it more rare is that he finished the last kilometer or two at a pace that, you know, you, you watch the replays and it's like, he's sprinting. And then you realize, oh, there's still 500 meters to go. He's he's sprinting all the way, and he kept and, and he didn't need to. There was nobody with him. Normally, you can only really uncork a finishing sprint if you have someone, you know, breathing down your neck. So, um, I don't know what that tells us, except that the, the finish line matters. And this idea of telio anticipation uh, dates back to the 90s. A, a researcher named Ulmer, and he he was looking at you know, bird migration, for instance, how do they know exactly? Birds seem to arrive at, after long distance migrations. They tend to arrive at their destination with like, you know, just fumes of gas left in their tank. If the migration migration was, you know, a mile longer, they would all die. Or, or you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, um, and so they're clearly sort of judging their effort exactly based on knowing the, the end point. And, and, and to your point again about the length of the, the bike rides, the, the point about, and, and telio, t- telos means end. So telio anticipation is anticipation of the end is, is literally what we're talking about. It's not just about, I mean, this 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 idea of telio anticipation is fundamental to pacing, right? So if if I go out and run a 5K and I go out and uh, go, go out and run a marathon, right from the start, I'm, it's not just that I go out and run as fast as I can and I slow down gradually and, and I stop whenever the finish line is. I'm, my pace, from the very first step, I'm, judging my effort based on how long I know I have to continue. So it's obvious that um, I'm going to get tired sooner in the 5K because I'm going faster. But there's more to it than that. And if they do studies in the lab where they'll put someone on a treadmill and you're just running at a given pace. So the pace is predetermined. It's not like you're choosing how fast to go. And how far you're told you have to go dictates your perception of effort. So if you're told you have to go for 30 minutes, your effort is going to increase more rapidly than if you're told you have to go for an hour, even if you're running at exactly the same pace. And then if you get to half an hour and you think you're done and they say, oh, actually, I was just kidding. You need to go another 10 minutes. Then your effort goes even higher because you're like, I was told I was going to finish. And it's not. And in this, in this case, in, you know, on the other version of the test, you're doing that same pace for an hour. It's not that you can't keep going the 10 minutes. It's just that you've based your whole interpretation of this experience based on your sense of when you're going to be done. 
So, so these, these endpoints really play a powerful role beyond just the obvious, like if you do a, a longer race, you'll start slower. The, uh, the London marathon, you missed one key part. There is that Kivan or Sivan Hassan, when she won had stopped his stretch <laughs> during the race, which is unbelievable. It, it, it was amazing. Yeah. She, and she, you know, she was, it was interesting to hear some of the interviews after that, you know, again, she, this was her first marathon. She was, you know, a very accomplished track runner running a, a marathon was a sort of unusual thing for her to do. And she said, you know, she was waking up in the mornings, you know, leading up to the race, you know, on the verge of tears, asking herself, you know, why did I agree to do this? What, why did this seem like a good idea? She, she was terrified uh, and with good reason because marathons are, are terrifying. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and during the race, yeah, she was, she, she had these leg problems. She had to stop. So she was draw she was gapped by, I can't remember how, you know, 15, 20 seconds, maybe more. Um, cause she had to stop and stretch out at one point late in the race with maybe a couple kilometers to go. Um, she suddenly realized there was a drinks table off to the, on the other side of the road. So she, she returned and, and ran like at a 90 degree angle across the road, almost got wiped out by one of the camera motorcycles, like, like, uh, you know, a, a, a foot or two away from just being absolutely flattened, grabbed her water bottle, ran back over to the other side where the runners were took a drink, offered her a bottle to the, to her, one of the other runners who was, uh, you know, also from Ethiopia originally. And the other runner was so tired. She couldn't even respond. She was just like ignoring. And Hassan was like, do you want this bottle? Do you want this bottle? Do you want, and no, the other runner was just like a zombie. So it was, it was this, uh, you can never run your first marathon a second time. And so Hassan, in a sense, had no template for knowing how tired she was supposed to be at this point in the race. Um, and there, 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 was, there was a school of thought over the years. I don't think it's really held up, but there was a school of thought that a lot of people will end up running their, their best marathon first because after their first marathon, if they run a good one, they'll, they'll know how terrible it's going to be and they'll never be able to push themselves quite as hard. I think that turns out to be true for some people, not certainly not for everybody. Um, but Hassan had this sort of um, beginner's yeah. innocence in the way she and ran charm it. and charm the way she ran it. Yeah. Yeah. And in her sort of reaction after the race of, I, you know, I just, I don't know. It, it, I was terrified, but it just worked out. So <laughs> yeah, it was a fun race to watch. Yeah, it is. So why do you think that some people seem to have more of an ingrained ability to endure than others? Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a, it's a, it obviously it's the sort of million dollar question and how much is born, how much is learned, how much can you train? Um, I, I would say an important point to, to make is that there is good evidence that you get better at this stuff. You, you, you learn what you practice. There's good scientific studies showing that, um, well, it's certainly true that trained athletes have a higher sort of willingness to tolerate discomfort than recreational athletes who in turn have a higher willingness to tolerate discomfort than uh, the average person. Um, but it's also true that this tolerance increases and decreases based on training levels. And the more, the more hard training you do, the more, and not just like the more you run, the better you are at running, but the more in the, 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 the classic study, the first one back in the eighties was done on swimmers in, in Scotland. And it's like, um, you know, the more you train hard as a swimmer, the more pain you're able to tolerate when they, uh, 
block off blood flow to your arm with a blood pressure cuff. So it's not like they've practiced that specific form of pain. It's just this general ability to tolerate discomfort. And we all know it gets better with experience that that if someone gets up off the couch and decides to run their first 5K, um, and so they're going to, they, they start training, they do a run-walk program or something, that yeah, six weeks from then, there's going to be physical changes. There's, their muscles will have changed. Their cardiovascular vascular system will start getting healthier, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff is true. But what's also true is that they're they're going to reach that point in a run where they're out of breath and they're no longer going to be thinking, I'm about to die because I'm breathing heavily. I need to stop right away. They're going to be thinking, oh, this is what happens when I run. I'm not going to die. I can keep going. It's going to be uncomfortable. And they're gradually pushing back those barriers. So there's the you know, there's physical changes with training, but there's also psychological learning. So, sorry, that's a, a long-winded way of saying that that people get better, and it's not just what you're born with. But if I had to, you know, if you if you uh, sort of pin me down, force me to 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 state my beliefs, I would say that there's probably some genetic element, but there's also probably a lot of early life environmental element, the way people are brought up, what, what sort of what they're encouraged to do and what they're not, what there's, there's certain, there's some, some famous research of, of British Olympians, um, that compared like the medalists to the finalists. So we're not talking about, you know, Olympians versus couch potatoes. We're talking about Olympic champions versus really good Olympians. And one of the themes that they pulled out from that is that the medalists all seemed to have some sort of early life trauma that was uh th- that took place around the time that they decided to get deep into sport and you know i don't want to read too much into that this is not like th- this was a fairly small study but it-, it was a pattern that really seemed to recur and that they were turning to sport as a way of coping with discomfort in other aspects of their life and that maybe helped them you know learn to push themselves, drive themselves harder than, than, than other people, even than other very talented and very dedicated athletes. So it does seem that the most comfortable environments do not create the hardest people. That's I think fair to say. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that, I think that's, you, that's true on individual levels, on social levels, on societal levels, on national levels. I mean, it's a cliche, but, um, you know, wh- why are there 2000 runners in Kenya training at, a, at an elite level? Um, hoping, hoping to make a breakthrough and living on on nothing, compared to the number who who might be doing it in Canada or the U.S. Life is harder in Kenya for you know, and a lot of those runners come not from Nairobi but from poor rural areas. Um, so it's there's some rational calculations about opportunity cost, but there's also just like how used to you are, how, how comfortable are you being uncomfortable and and. Uh, yeah, so so I think it operates on a number of levels, and so the, the, there's environmental, genetic, uh, and, and but also choices that we make too. I think you uh, you sum that up well about Kenya. In one interview I heard with you, Alex, where you said that um, if you think about the level of discomfort that these Kenyan runners are exposed to on a sort of a daily chronic basis, I think you talked about traveling long distances in a truck and it reminded me once I was traveling in Bolivia to go climb a mountain, a very remote mountain in Bolivia. And I had to ride 13 hours in the back of a farm truck sitting on alpaca hides on top of cans of Coca-Cola. And there was women and kids sitting back there. And I thought, this is their regular commute. They probably do this a couple of times a month or maybe a couple of times a week. And this is just normal for them. And uh, I think that is a great explanation for the fact that a chronic level of discomfort makes you better at at sustaining the discomfort that occurs in endurance sports. 
we get better at what we practice, right? Like there's, this yeah. is, it's no different for this than for mathematics or juggling or, or whatever the case may be. And yeah, I mean, I, I remember I took a, uh, a, a truck ride or a, a, it was supposed to be a bus, but I guess it was basically a Jeep in Papua New Guinea, similar. It's like, I don't know, six hours uh, it, in the, like, the road was basically not a road uh, and it was filled with all the the supplies. So we're basically like perched on, you know, a sack of rice and we were being treated, uh, you know, as the foreigners, we were, we were given the luxury of, Oh, you can be inside the vehicle. And, and, you know, there's like 30 people clinging to the back of this van. It was like, and we were about to embark on a very rigorous one week hike. The hike was nothing compared to the bus ride. And as you said, the bus ride was just you know, easy for the for, for people who had done it. Not easy, but maybe familiar to to people who'd grown up. And you know, for me, growing up riding the subway, it was a different experience, and I was softer. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, there's there's no two ways about it. Earlier in the conversation, we we're talking about training and, and putting up with pain. It reminds me of that Greg Lamont quote. He said, "The more I train, doesn't mean it hurts less. It hurts just as much. I'm just going faster." So he's yeah. He's, that's he's, kind of a. It's a pithy quote, but it makes sense. It's a sum up of the, of the, of the, yeah, the, the endurance life. That's what it's all about. It's because if you're, if you're into pushing your limits, you're, you're, you're never just like, oh, now I'm so much fitter that it's going to be easy to do this. It's not, now I can do twice as much. Now I can go faster. Now I can go farther. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, it, endure was my attempt to answer like, how do people do these things? How do we push our limits? But in a sense, the, the the deeper and more interesting question is why do we do these things? Why why do we want to? Um, why are we drawn to to as Greg Lamont says to, to to stay at this level where it's always uncomfortable? There is no there is no sort of uh, horizon where it's like oh it'll be easy if I just do this training it's going to be easier. No, if I do this training I'm just going to be able to help, allow myself to suffer for longer. Um, and the why is a hard question. Uh, it's it's one that I'm thinking a lot about these days. As always, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. We really appreciate it. There's a ton of great podcasts out there. So the fact that you're making a little bit of time to listen to ours means a lot. The best way for you to help us grow the show and support it is simply by word of mouth. Believe it or not, with all the technology out there these days, that's still the best way for people to find new podcasts. So if you know somebody that you think would enjoy what we're doing, please let them know about the show or give us a positive rating or review on social media. That goes a long way or whatever podcast platform you're finding the show. Thanks for tuning in. We are going to bring you part two of our conversation with Alex right away. So you should be able to really get these downloaded and put your feed uh, back to back. Thank you again for tuning in and thank you again to Alex.